Previously on Storyological. <laughs> That's my audio exercise for today. Steel mill. Steel mill. Or they pinned their pens to the steel mill. Why would you pin a pen? Well, you wouldn't necessarily, but I just enjoy hearing you try to differentiate those words. Oh, it's easy. One is an I, one is an E. We just don't think there's any point in it. And in fact, there's very little point in that. Whereas, whereas with the Oxford comma, there's a great deal of point. <laughs> how many days, how many days do you think in our lives do we talk about Oxford commas? Like well, portion. I mean, probably four days out of the week, uh, yeah. Oxford comma comes up. Yeah, uh, I, that's I mean, because it's this metaphor that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. It's a bisexual metaphor. <laughs> is it? Yeah, you see a bit of British society and you think, oh, that is entirely dependent on you already knowing the meaning of what's happening in order for you to make sense of it. Correct. Just like the Oxford comma. Or you (laughs) see the lack of an Oxford comma and you think, oh, that's just like the thing in British society where there are a lot of rules that make sense only after you know what the rules are and why they're there. Why? And there's all these secret assumptions that we don't even know we have. And then we get really upset when people don't have those same assumptions. It's true, it's true. And it must be hard being the only culture with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. Uh, this week, readers, we are doing a special graphic edition by which we are going to curse. No. And we're going to talk about stories of a pictorial nature. Uh, my pick for this week is a self-selected excerpt from Super Mutant Magic Academy by Jillian Tamaki, which is a wonderful book that collects her webcomic of the same name and the 20 or 30 page story at the end that wraps up the storyline that has been developing over the course of the series between Wendy and Marsha. Marsha being, uh, well, exactly like someone whose name is Marsha that is represented in a comic book. Sort of marshy. Yeah, total marsh. Uh, And Wendy uh, is a girl that wears, sorry, she doesn't wear. Wendy is a girl who sometimes turns into a fox and so has little fox ears on top of her head. Uh, and she is exactly like a girl who has little fox ears on top of her head. And amazing hair. Yeah. <laughs> she does have amazing hair. Uh, Marsha is in love with Wendy. And the excerpts that I chose for us to talk about are mostly the storyline between them, where Marsha really loves Wendy. Wendy just treats Marsha like a friend. Marsha's too afraid to admit that she's in love with Wendy, though she occasionally, especially at the beginning of the story, blurts it out. And then it's like, ha-ha, <laughs> joking. Um, it's all magnificent. For me, it's one of the favorite things I read last year. It is an alchemical mix of X-Men and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Harry Potter and Kelly Link and a little bit of Borges mixed in. It's told mostly in black and white, though there are occasional blushes of color. Uh, it's a boarding school story. They're at a super mutant magic academy. Mm-hmm. What I think I, I love is the those occasional blushes of color are kind of like the way the story, for the most part, unlike Harry Potter or unlike Buffy, all of the magical heroic destiny stuff is mostly off to the side and occasionally bursts out like those little bits of color. But for the most part, it's just the lives of these people in school. It's like the episode, the Zeppo of Buffy, mm-hmm. but page after page of that. This has been sitting on our shelf for a couple of years, and I don't know why I haven't picked it up before this. I love Julian Tamaki. I love um, this one summer. Uh, I think her art, I just want to cuddle up to it and like kind of make it my new teddy bear. 
And so I was really happy when you picked this and I finally got around to reading it. And what is so beautiful about it is kind of how gently but how perfectly the the crush love line of unrequited love is between them. How how the, clearly they're these buds, but you get these frames of kind of Wendy looking off into the distance and Marsha behind her just gazing at her adoringly. And it builds in this really gentle but specific way of the interactions they have where where you get this immediate sense you know Marsha loves Wendy and Wendy is completely oblivious and just very sweet and thinks they're thinks they're buddies um it's paced so perfectly as well right each mini story is just one page usually six six panels and it's its own little thing, although they they build up into this much larger storyline and conclusion. And one of my favorites from early on, where you really understand kind of how big Marsha's crush is and how clueless Wendy is, is when you see these texts back and forth between them. And that's all you get is the phone screen. Have you seen my hairbrush? No, I haven't seen it. I don't know where it is. Oh, well, can you have a look? I think maybe I left it with you. I'm not sure, says Marsha. And then it pulls out and you see the hairbrush tucked up in bed next to Marsha as she's going to sleep. And you're just like, oh, my little cheeks got their own blush on. It was just so adorable. I don't know why I didn't think that was creepy. There's something about how engaging her art is and how gentle, not gentle, but how perfectly placed all of it is that just makes it feel adorable and not creepy. True. I I think also we've come to know Marsha fairly well at that point. And we know we ourselves do creepy, weird things. But we know ourselves, or right. we know our friends who do creepy, weird we things. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and, and we often our friends the little creepy, weird things as we know them, endears them to us in some way. I, I saw somebody post on Twitter recently that somebody tells you that a dude in your life is is actually a really creepy person that bothers women and you think oh yeah yeah that guy's really weird to be around um you know but he's cool maybe maybe there's something there maybe that person is a uh socially awkward but if you think oh that guy's great he never does anything weird Mm. it's probably a bad sign (laughs) yeah it probably means he's keeping it from you yeah yeah and the characters in these stories are not keeping any secrets from us and one of the things that i adore is is the way the story treats unrequited love there's there's a quote i don't remember where it's from i will look it up later and put it in the show notes maybe it's from oscar wilde it's the love that dare not speak its name Mm. which is what now seems to me this mythological quote about queerness and about love and it is rare to encounter a story where uh, the unrequited love goes through a transformation that transforms the unrequitedness of the love and transforms the love which was being unrequited Mm. and it's especially rare i feel like to see it done so well in a gothic story which we'll talk a bit more about later where in a gothic story queerness can often be buried inside of magic or possession or some storyline that ultimately in some way could be read as monstrous because usually gothic stories have monsters in them. It was lovely to see in this story that in the context of queer identities and the tropes of gothic, these different choices were made such that that the question could be explored in a conscious manner throughout the story and not sublimated into the magic. The magic is just there in the background. And here there are are no secrets between us and the characters. And ultimately, there's no secret 
between the characters. There's nothing they dare not speak about to each other. There's no love they can't speak. And the last panel of the story, it, it hits this perfect note where Marsha finally says the three words and means them, I love you. And Wendy says the words back to her. And we know everything that those characters mean in that moment. Mm. Oh, yeah, that last panel. I, for me, there was some ambiguity. Like, it seemed like Marsha was asleep when Wendy says those words in the last panel. And I was like, does she hear them? Or has she, has she heard them and then snuggled up to sleep? Or has she gone to sleep and has not heard that Wendy has finally also said, I love you? And meant it. And, and I was okay with that ambiguity, but it felt so perfect and so painful at the same time. The story reminded me of Twelfth Night in a lot of ways. Because in Twelfth Night, you've got, you've got the twins who are stranded on a, from a shipwreck and who disguise themselves. One of them goes to Duke Orsino's court and uh, she disguises herself as a boy and falls in love with Duke Orsino. And it, and it is the love that, that cannot speak. And it, it's this beautiful sort of rendition of unrequited love and all of the shenanigans that goes on around it. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I found, I found the humor and the pathos in Twelfth Night remind me a lot of the humor and the pathos of this. There is no, the, it is funny as anything, but it doesn't undercut the real emotional pain that Marsha exists in. And I'm so admiring of when authors can bring those two things together at the same time yeah yeah definitely my favorite thing in the world humor and pathos um it reminded me sometimes the economy of her panels of of schultz which is really i don't know he's a go-to guy to compare people to um but it is what i thought of schultz the guy who did the peanuts comic strips i realize that might be a fairly culturally specific reference um, I wouldn't have got it. No, uh, I don't even think of them as being peanuts. Snoopy, right? I just call it Snoopy. Brown. Yeah, uh, yeah. So do uh, the children I taught in Korea. Oh, the Snoopy comic, and I'm like, you know, you know, you're you're enacting like the neuroses of the comic strip in real life. That the comic strip centers for the most part on Charlie Brown, this depressed kid who has a super excitable dog who's really cool, <laughs> and everybody in the world is like, yeah, the Snoopy comic. Oh. Uh, as you say, each of the stories are often contained in a page. And like a Schultz comic, there's often in the final panel some little glimpse of emotion that in Charles Schultz could be funny and often a bit more griefy. Mm. Griefy. Oh, I like that word. Yeah, good as grief. That's, uh, that's classic Schultz. Um, and in, in, in Tamaki's art, she does something similar but often those little reveals in a panel aren't so much depressing as a kind of glimpse into an expansive reality. Mm. Sometimes played just for laughs, like when Marsha is fooling around with her stamps and this jock comes up and says, oh, stamp collecting. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're going to make fun of me because I collect stamps. And the jock at the end flashes open his jacket and it's <laughs> full of stamps. And he's like, actually, <laughs> no. Um, and then there's like what you said with the pullback with the hairbrush. Or there's one, one moment where Marsha's walking through the halls and everyone's thoughts are around her in black and white and you don't see anything she's thinking until the last panel, which is just sex spelled out in red letters. Yeah. Um, it works the way humor works. Every, every one of these panels is a punchline that kind of makes you smile or laugh, but it's always pointing at some deeper reality to the characters. 
The other part of pacing and having a lot of the final panels being such great joke punchlines is that oftentimes what she does is just hold on a moment and there's there's something about the way you can do that in comics that I don't think you can achieve the same feeling in say prose you can kind of get it like if you have a really short paragraph that's maybe just half a line long mm. my mother know. was a fish and there he was whatever yeah new paragraph and so you but you but you don't get the same kind of emotional payoff in it and it's something i adore in comics and like when people deliver it right like jillian does i'm just like oh i would i will read anything she does forever just mm-hmm. for those kind of um tension and release pay set up and pay off kind of things that that it allows her to do yeah yeah it's an interesting question would you have enjoyed the book granted you might not have read the whole book but would you have enjoyed the story as much without the 30 page or so conclusion i think so yeah, yeah. because there because there was so much enjoyment yeah. in each page individually and of course when you get that 30 page conclusion and it's prom and it turns out the whilst uh wendy goes to prom with all her mates marcia goes off and sits in a cave and almost encounters a heroic destiny almost encounters it but kind of turns it down it's like that's not for me and then it turns out that was all a mistake anyway yeah um that's life yeah it's so beautiful and so perfect and so right for Marsha and her experience of the world and what she represents that um yeah i just oh it just fills me with joy and pain and laughter right i mean it wouldn't matter i mean i would it's i would gladly continue to read little bits of it forever um speaking of the heroic quest uh one other thing that i wanted to talk about was the way a little more specifically about the way magic works because i feel like something i adore as much as humor and pathos maybe it's part of humor and pathos because shakespeare does this as well is that the, the magic in the story the things that are out of this world sometimes literally contain within them the same kinds of the same mixture of transcendent mystery and just disappointing shallowness that make up the rest of life. And so in one panel, you'll get this boy, the forever boy, this boy who cannot die, who wraps himself literally in a blanket of stars and Mm -hmm. takes a little nap. And it's so so beautiful. And then in another panel, they're communing with ghosts. And then it seems like the ghosts maybe start poking at the girls and flirting with them, asking them if they will kiss. And you're like, boys. But they're ghosts, but it's still there. And the same thing happens, uh, you know, in the characters' lives. And that one panel, Marsha punches a girl for describing how sparkly their dice, their Dungeons and Dragons dice are, because Marsha doesn't want girls to all be girly. We can't, blah, 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 blah. Uh, But then in this other panel, Marsha and Wendy are standing in the snow. And there are these three sets of footprints that are circling around them. And as you look at it, you realize, oh, okay, these two sets of footprints come together. Oh, and one of one of the things ate the other thing. And now it's another set of footprints by itself. Oh, and then it runs into another set of footprints, which eats that one and continues off into the, the rest of the panel. And the image has such a, a quiet, brutal, funny elegance to it. And it's mysterious and it's true. And mm. That image stays with me because there those two girls are in the middle of it all. And everything in that image is in them too. 
My pick for this week is uh, My Friend Jana from Emily Carroll's collection Through the Woods. Over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. <laughs> I don't know what you're singing. You don't know that song? No. Oh, well, that's, I, I presume, where the uh, name of the book comes from. But maybe not. My Friend Jana is the story of Jana and Yvonne, two girls who stage fake seances. And Yvonne hides in the walls, providing sound effects, while Yana, Yana, Jana, I don't know, one of those, acts as the medium. But the way that this is told is that is just the backstory to Yvonne's current dread, which is that she can see a ghost or some kind of white mist shrouding around her friend Yana. Um, and the kind of core horror in this story, because the whole collection is is horror, this, this story really centers around this haunting of Jana and Yvonne's helplessness to do anything about it. And what was so amazing to me about the helplessness in this story is that it's kind of of her own constructing. Like she wants to say something to Jana about the fact that she seems to be haunted, but she's like, well, I can't. And, you know, maybe she'll be weird about it. And maybe she'll think that I'm trying to be all clever because I can really see ghosts and she can only pretend. And I just, I find that kind of psychological work that she's doing to prevent herself saying something that essentially she's just scared of doing is beautifully exposed by Emily in this. And I think a lot of horror centers or pivots on that helplessness. And sometimes people are isolated in a physical way, like maybe trapped, maybe deserted by, by others. But in this story... Her isolation and her helplessness comes from her own mental fatigue (laughs) or mental failings. And I really enjoy how that cranks up the pain as well as the horror. Like you don't feel... Sometimes when when people get abandoned or deserted in a horror story, you kind of feel a bit cheated. Like, oh, well, that had to happen. Whereas in this story, because you see how she's doing it to herself and you see the guilt that she has... uh, associated with with not being able to tell her friend it makes it triply painful yeah i really enjoyed the various forms of haunting and being haunted in this story there's a lyric in a radiohead song uh that goes i am an animal trapped in your hot car uh which played for me over the the final few pages the i i read the story you know the the narrator is trapped, like you said, and helpless, but of their own design. And there's this beautiful fact that the story starts with my friend Yana, are we saying? Yeah, let's go with Yana. Yana. My friend Yana uh, speaks to the dead. Cool, interesting. And then it turns out the dead that she pretends to speak to uh, is Yvonne, who is in the walls, inside the walls of Yana's house, banging on them as though she were a ghost. Um... So yeah, there's one image of trapped for you. And 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 so that too, though, is an image of the way Yvonne is a part of and apart from Yana's life. And I read the story maybe because of my, my classes at MFA where we talked about queer and the gothic a lot and Sarah Waters' affinity and this this idea that, that 
the querying of Gothic stories is something that is both very present and something that's very easy to lay on to the story because mm. the stories are all about sublimated desires and people not able to speak what they want to speak. And this story for me, a lot of it seemed right there on the surface. You know, they, uh, they find a rabbit and Yvonne says something's been eating at it as something has been eating at it, Yvonne. Mm. Um, or Yvonne saying there's this thing that I see and Jana doesn't. There's to me a perfect turn whether or not Yvonne's interest in Diana is romantic, and I think it is, but whether or not it is, there's an interesting turn in that the fact that Diana is speaking to dead people, but is Yvonne pretending to be a ghost? And then Yvonne seeing Yana as actually haunted, mm-hmm. and it's real, but she is afraid to tell Yana, like you said. And then by the end of the story, there's that panel where it's just Yvonne calling Yana's name, Yana's name, Yana's name. And then one person at the end calls Yvonne's name. Mm. And the, the way that dialogue, that name is written, is the same as Yana's written. And you, before you even see the last panel of Yvonne haunted, you've mm. been prepared for the realization that after pretending to be a ghost, she is now really haunted mm-hmm. and maybe has been haunted all along. Right. She doesn't know it. Feelings. <laughs> she doesn't know it, but we see it at the end in that right. final reveal. Right. I, yeah, that, that section where where she's shouting Yana's name because Yana has died or gone missing, right? The the ghost has finally overtaken her. Um, she does this really interesting thing with pulling apart the visuals from the back, the flashback, uh, from the text of the flashback. So it seems she thinks that uh, Yana's haunting came from the time that they found a, a f- rabbit that had been eaten by a fox. Uh, and Yana reached out and touched it, but Yvonne was too scared to. But we get that story in two parts. The first time we see that story, the narration over the top of it is what good buddies they are. But we see the images of the rabbit and them reaching down and looking at it. But then at the end of the story, we get her shouting and running and trying to find Yana, but Yana is dead or gone or missing. And that's where we get the narration of them finding this rabbit and Yana reaching down and touching touching it. And it recontextualizes our understanding of that from being this incredible bonding moment to, oh my God, this is the source of her haunting. This is where the source of my guilt, the the division that comes between us. And I just, yeah. like when I realized she'd made that play and that balance between the text and the visuals and splitting them apart, I was like, damn, this woman is smart. That is mm. a beautiful, beautiful way to structure it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The division between them is interesting. So uh, on the one hand, uh, kind of like I alluded to earlier, it was crazy to me to realize uh, when I read this story that we have essentially picked the same story, which is <laughs> the story of a female companions inside of gothic tropes whoa how different the stories turn out depending on (laughs) how able the characters are to access their feelings for each other or just about themselves the you know gothic is full of doubling and something we talked about in kelly link about doubling and when you have you know any two characters but especially when you when you got you know female companions in a gothic story look out Mm. you're just going to be doubling all over the place and i love that that flashback that you pulled out and the way that uh, Emily uses it in the story, it pulls at that division in the way that they are doubled, in the in the way that Yana speaks to the dead, but not really, 
But also, she's totally willing to continue to speak to the dead because for other people, it's real and she doesn't know how to turn it off. And on, on the one hand, when you read that, that's creepy. That's like, well, clearly that's going to, what's going to be your ruin. <laughs> but by using, yeah, by using the flashback of the rabbit, it, it felt more like by the end of the story, I think rightly, your, your sympathies are kind of with Yana and, and, and a little bit of the sense, for me anyway, of that thing, like in Super Mutant Magic Academy, where the love is totally spoken, totally named, we are armed with humor and self-awareness, we can handle that. Mm. And in this story, where um, you have that central image of, of death, and you know, death is this verboten thing, this thing you're not supposed to talk about, this thing you're not supposed to touch, and Yana is willing to touch it. And in a way, you could, you could read that, as that's what allows her to escape the story. Mm. she's not haunted at the end of the story. We don't know what happened to her. She's just gone. Right. Could, well, it does it sort of seem to imply that she's consumed by whatever it is that's haunting her. That's true. But the, the story's point of view is entirely Yvonne, who we know yes. at the end of the story, outside of her perspective to a certain degree, is the one who is haunted. Right. And I only really realized today when I read it again... I don't know, I read it many, many times before, and today was the first time I thought, gosh, it's not necessarily that we, she has just become haunted and picked this up from mm-hmm. Yana. She could have been haunted all along. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I love the, the way that Emily modulates play and that at the beginning when Yana is speaking to the dead, we first read that as literal, especially if you've read the collection. You're like, mm. oh, okay. But then it turns out to be a game. And and it goes into a not game place, <laughs> and that is really cool. And again, totally reading that in terms of feelings. Like you say, we've picked very similar stories, but they deal with them very differently. And I think that you know what you pointed out—the ability to express what's happening or the the deep dark emotions—is kind of what separates horror and comedy. Um, because they're both looking to create this physical reaction, this kind of convulsion or tension and release in you. Um, and yet the kind of the flipping of it being positive or negative is so narrow, a fine line in many ways. Uh, I mentioned queerness and Gothic a lot in this episode, and I just want to go off on it for a little bit. Um, like Faith and Buffy, very cool, very much a doubling very much read in various circles as queer um, for various reasons, one of which is that Faith sometimes acts like she wants to have sex with Buffy, and isn't that a fun thing to think about? So let's go with it, people. Uh, And when I read Through the Woods, uh, after I'd read Super Mutant Magic Academy, uh, I started looking up, what do people say about queerness and gothic? What's the, the, the latest jam? And I read, I guess, what's kind of a summary of the, of the basic idea that that you can look at queer gothic in like a couple of modes. One is where you recognize the uncanny is queer and the queer is uncanny and the literal definition of the word queer separate from sexuality, mm-hmm. that it's odd. Um, and that people therefore often celebrate the gothic as a, as a safe place to, to look at queerness, to look at uncanniness and the ways that it's explored um, because it's there. Where I mean, in the sense that writers can put queerness into the stories because there's already an uncanniness that's accepted, and here I mean queerness as a sexual orientation. Uh, 
And so some people, when they read Gothic, they read it as, oh, here's where the person slip in the queer. And some people read it as, um, it's a little problematic that we're reading all of this stuff as queer. And the queerness is always monstrous. monstrous yeah. It's always bad. And, you know, you could, I was thinking you could make the same argument here with Through the Woods. Granted, I'm reading that queerness into the story, but because it's about a female friendship where one of the the female seems to have really strong feelings for the other and seems unable to express them. It seems kind of there, but I'm reading it that way. It, it, it hit me a lot. It felt like you, not just in terms of this story, but in general, when people think about the Gothic mode as a place for queerness, that you have to reckon with this thing that usually it's any kind of feelings in the Gothic, in Buffy, in Through the Woods, Less so in Super Mutant Magic Academy because it's it's doing its thing. Uh, you're in the mood of horror, of possession, of ghosts, of demons, and you end up with the worry that queerness in the gothic mode is always going to be monstrous. And I feel like from my thinking about it this week, I came down with like love is a powerful magic, no matter what relationship, whether it's sexual, whether it's friendship, and particularly when it's hidden in some way. And I already recognize that kind of love, both hidden and unhidden, as a kind of monster, queer or otherwise. And I think that's why Gothic works so well as a place to explore relationships. Right, because it can control you and makes you like an unwilling right. or un unconscious participant. Yeah, exactly. And that's neither queer nor there. Uh, oh. oh! Yeah. I didn't even... Anyway, um... And for me in the Through the Woods story, that the scene of a ghost, a uh, scene of a real ghost, is only ever in Yvonne's character. And so unlike Yana, who is uh, not afraid to touch death, mm. uh, Yvonne is afraid to touch death. There's this poem by A.E. Houseman where he's speaking of how these soldiers should have, or these young boys should have, live to shame the land where they were from and they would not have therefore died right, the if they had lad. done that yeah oh yeah the yeah. Shropshire lad uh and it felt like that was one way that I could pull at this story that if if Yvonne had been willing to touch death had been willing to not just play but seriously connect with Yana in some way seriously connect with her feelings seriously mm. find a way to breach what was hidden inside of her then maybe things would have turned out different. I have a question mm. about that yes. in my heart, which is what is thinking about queerness in this story add to it? Because when I'm thinking about older stories, like say The House on Haunted Hill, where you've got those two females, I don't remember what their names are, but reading it, I'm like, oh my God, the sexual tension in this mm -hmm. is just burning off the page. Right. And that's written in a time where, you know, maybe you couldn't be more explicit. Maybe it, it was important to 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 push those feelings out through other story avenues. Yeah. Yet now, you know, we're reading a horror story by, you know, a woman who has been legally married to her wife for however many years. She's She's writing in an age and a time where it's, you know, you're allowed to express these feelings. Mm -hmm. And so to me, thinking about queerness like inside of this story, I'm just not, I mean, maybe it's an academic thing and it's, it's useful to adding to a broader conversation. But for me, it doesn't necessarily add to the, 
the feeling and understanding of this story in particular? Um, well, I guess two things. One, there was nothing academic when I read it, and it seemed like Yvonne was clearly in love with Yana, and that clearly the uh, the words on the page, like when he, Yvonne has realized something is supposedly haunting Yana that she can see, uh, Yvonne saying, she becomes so angry with me now, so easily. I almost wonder if she can tell that I'm hiding something. It's just that if I did tell her, I worry she might think I was making fun, being cruel, somehow lying. Maybe even acting as though I'm special, more special than her, because I can actually see ghosts, and she can only play at it. And I could read that as totally literal. They're just talking about the haunting. Hmm. But that's not the way I approach stories. I always think there's some level of reality inside of the words that isn't on the surface, especially, especially when I'm reading a story about ghosts and demons and possessions. And so I, I read that and I think, well, whatever Yvonne's feeling, whether it's romantic or not, she is possessed of something that she's hiding from Yvonne. And you could read that any number of ways, but it seems like it must be a really strong feeling for her to be hiding it yeah totally but and i suppose i just wanted to make sure that you know that like you said that there is some problematic feeling or some there's a lot of discomfort in me of feeling like queerness is monstrous and feeling like Mm -hmm. oh well there's a sublimated feeling oh it must be queerness and i i feel like that does no does not help the 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 cause of normalizing queerness and feeling like the thinking about it or the story itself i feel like the always always talk thinking that the sublimated feelings that are big must therefore be some kind of queerness to me is I'm like, sure, let's put it out there as an option. Let's understand that it could be one of those, but it could be a thousand different things between the friends. And I don't want to feel like the... um, Right, I don't want to feel like the monstrosity is always queer. No, it doesn't have to be. But if it was a man and a woman in the story, I would think that it was love or some something that was thought to be both big and shameful. Um... And that's part of what bothered me about the story. Uh, or, or, and that's part of what made me feel a little uncomfortable with the story. Like, the reason why I'm talking about it is not because I think it does or doesn't add to the story, but it does explain some of what made me uncomfortable and led me to think about it. Because why is this story that's written now partaking in the same exact mode, making similar choices? Mm that were made 80 years ago in a story about female friendship. Whereas in Super Mutant Magic Academy, it felt like she was making totally different choices and explicating that relationship in a totally different way while not losing the sense that one character was haunted or possessed Mm -hmm. by her unrequited feeling. She was still able to not use that imagery. And in this story, it it felt like all of the feeling was sublimated and turned into turned through the tropes of horror, whatever the feeling was that she had for. Right, and Emily is writing in this slightly non-specific, old-timey kind of style right. and yeah. period. Yeah, and the story set in the long ago time when presumably they would not have been discussing their feelings of whatever amount yeah. and whatever sort out loud. Kind of understand, right? She's 
she's making a comic version of of those kinds of stories like the same yeah. way how people you know s- are still writing new interpretations of sherlock right mm-hmm. she's writing this this version yeah. of these stories right. um so yeah I, c- I can understand it and i can understand the interpretation i just i there's just something in my little heart that that feels discomfort thanks for listening readers we have probably not said all of the things about all of these stories that we discussed today. Nor have we almost certainly discussed anywhere near the total number of stories that exist in the universe. So if you would like to get in touch and let us know your thoughts on these stories or make recommendations for what we should look at in future episodes, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. Oh, and this week we will be at Worldcon, so you can come up and say hi and make your recommendations to us in person. Yes, uh, my badge will definitely say Storyological on it. I don't know about Emma's badge. Mine will have it scrolled on in Sharpie, which I feel like is the more realistic representation. Uh, You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at egkosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at kuvols. Uh, You can also follow and like us on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash storylogical, which you almost certainly know how to spell. (laughs) Um, And if you have enjoyed this episode, please seek us out on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps us massively in their algorithms and helps more people discover us. Which we love. And if you are constitutionally or monarchically, monarchically, Rule of lawly, religiously, physically opposed to Apple or iTunes, there is the entire universe of social media, which you can uh, (laughs) deploy in our benefit uh, and tell people an episode that you love and why you love it. Um, And really, of course, uh, you should go to our website for show notes, links to past episodes, links to interviews such as with Adam Ehrlich Sachs or Sam J. Miller, whose recent book, Art of Starving, just came out. And forthcomingly, you will find... <laughs> That's definitely not a word. Oh, it's, it's, it's in use. It's it? in use. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I just heard it. Just <laughs> not hardly five seconds ago, I heard somebody using it. Uh, anyway, we're, we're going to have an inter- interview with Amal El-Motar coming out shortly, so keep your eyes open for that. And you can find everything, all of the things, anything I just said, <laughs> plus so much more. <laughs> at our home on the web storylogical.com thanks for listening readers happy reading Uh, where is worldcon in helsinki in finland to be fair if you didn't know you're probably not going and now that you do you probably know why you're not going because it's far far away yeah i mean if we want to speak from an entirely uk slash U.S. centric point of view of the world because I mean somebody might be listening to us in Sweden and be like, I just didn't want to go. I mean, I I know it's right there, but right, whatever. I hate all those people. Better fish to eat, my friend. That's the thing they say in Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I have better fish to eat, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't even have to fry it there. They just plop out. It's time to go now. Uh, bye.